0: Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Scripture reading
1: today is from Isaiah 53, verses 2 to 8. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. Amen.
2: Today's text that we are looking at, we are beginning a new series on uh, this season of Advent. Advent is the time when the church traditionally uh, looks at the life of Jesus, who he is, leading up towards Christmas. It's when we are anticipating who he is. And as I was thinking about what to do during this series, I said, well, who's been anticipating Jesus the most? And the answer to that is the Old Testament. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Old Testament, the desire for, the need for uh, a, a Savior was anticipated and thought of and described there. So what better way for us over the next couple of weeks than to go to key Old Testament passages to look at the nature of. Who this person is. Now if you're like, that doesn't really, uh, that's not my thing. Let me try to give you, let me look at it a different way for you. Um, put it this way. Over Thanksgiving, <coughs> I watched the latest Thor movie, Love and Thunder, I think. Or Thunder and Love, or Love and Thunder. Meh, it's not, it's not great. Don't waste your time. I wouldn't, I wouldn't waste your time. But there's this scene where the, the bad guy, Christian Bale who is, the the theme of the movie is he's killing gods, and he has this phrase once, he says this, he says, I had a daughter once, I put my faith in a higher power, hoping it would save her, and she died. Now I understand, my daughter's the lucky one. She does not have to grow up in a world of suffering and pain, run by a wicked God. Choose love instead. And I thought that actually encapsulated well what I see with most New Yorkers, what I see with most Americans, that's how they see God these days. Which is that um, God could stop the evil and suffering, but He doesn't. In fact, I was talking to someone just uh, last week who, who said, listen, I can even believe in God. I believe God's good, but I don't think God's great. Because if God was great, He wouldn't let homelessness happen. He wouldn't let evil and suffering happen. And it's a very simple logic. If God is great and powerful, why is there war Why does my father have cancer? Why why, why are my friendships broken? Why is there all these isms that are out there? And I think what's interesting with all those questions is they tend to center on what God hasn't done. What hasn't he done? Now, of course, if God's great enough and big enough to stop evil and suffering, he probably is great enough and big enough to have reasons to allow suffering that we can't quite understand. But I, what I find interesting, and I find this myself, we f- so focus on what we think he hasn't done, we never focus on what he has done. And I wonder if, and I would argue that, if we, f- if we I think what he has done actually technically outweighs what he hasn't done. And the only way we're going to be able to figure that out is by weighing the facts of what God has done. We want facts, right? Everybody wants that. So here's, one, here's, a, here's a, an assertion people make. God is love. That's just an assertion. Anybody, that's an opinion. But Christians say the fact that God is is love, how do we know that? Because we look at the cross, we look at Jesus who died for us. And that's a fact. Or um, Christians say, not just that God's alive. Anybody can make an assertion like that God's alive. Christians say, no, we know that he's alive because he rose from the dead. There are eyewitness accounts from people who d- wouldn't normally say that somebody in the middle of history rose from the dead. And so there's the fact there. And so today, what I would think would be, would be interesting would be to look at divine proof, the divine action, the facts of what he's done. I think you've heard the saying that actions speak louder than words. So let's look at the actions. Because I would ultimately, I believe that you will most see his love if you see what he's done. And so for our, our text, our text might be one of the clearest places in the entire Bible that, that lists, That categorizes what he's actually done. So let's do this in three ways. Let's look at our need, his actions, and then how they might heal us. So let's look at first our need, then his actions, and then how that actually heals us. So first, our need. If you're new to Christianity, verse 6 might be the simplest uh, statement of our need. Let me read it real quickly. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way one commentary pointed out that most of these words are um, monosyllabic it's almost as if the writer was trying to put it as simply as possible for us to understand we all like sheep gone astray each of us turned to our own way and we need to pause here because the modern sense of self and identity really doesn't like this the modern world says wait a second that's low self esteem wait a second that's regressive how are we going to overcome this, the, the problem of, of the, our, our modern sensibilities, which is, this doesn't feel right. How are we going to actually get at, maybe the problem is us? Because I think what most people think is, the problem is outside of us, it's out there. I could try to cite statistics, I could, I could try to tell you about uh, wars, and genocides, and racism, and sexism, and all these isms, that we killed more people in the 20th century than any other century before, But you could still say, well, that's still the problems out there. So I could try to get personal. I could try to say, well, hey, think of that time when you hurt that person. And you didn't have to. You knew what it would do, but you did it anyway. I think it's always funny that when somebody else hurts you, you've seen this, right? When somebody else hurts you, uh, they're wrong. They're evil. How could they? But when you hurt somebody else, it's complicated. You know, I, it, it, I'm multi-layered. Let, let, let me show you all the reasons why. Let me show you, uh, you know, why aren't you trying to understand me? The modern world says the problem's out there. And that means, I, I mean, you'll see this over the past, the past hundred years. It's like, you know what, we just need more education. And by the way, education is good. We do need more education. We need more wealth. But what you, if you look over history, we actually are more educated than ever before. We're wealthier than we ever have been before. And yet we still have, we have more problems than we've ever had before. And so the problem isn't just out there. We have to ask ourselves, what might there be an alternative? And our our text gives it to us. The alternative is we all, each of us. It centers the problem there. And this is where I have to do a little bit of um, uh, explanation because the biblical idea, the problem is sin. But that word has so much baggage in our modern world that everybody has a different view of what what that word means. So let's try to define this fuzzy word here. Our text tells us that the problem in us is sin, but it's on two levels. Look at verse 6. First, sin is one in our own way. Each have turned to our own way. And this is important. A lot of people think sin is just like a, to, you know, a to-do list. You've broken the rules. You've broken uh, the, the list. But this is saying, no, the core of sin is an identity of saying my own way. I, I was a psychology major in college, and uh, psychologists point this out. They say in humanity, everybody has something called cognitive bias. It's a very nice, uh, sanitized way of saying that there's something about humans that tend to prioritize ourselves. Take any two babies or toddlers or children or adults, and put a toy in between them. And it's like that that Finding Nemo scene with the seagulls, you know, mine, 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 mine. Everybody, they're they're doing the same thing. And we laugh at kids, and I think as adults we've gotten better at uh, hiding this self-prioritization, but it's there. Uh, Also, over Thanksgiving, I watched um, the movie Wonder Woman 1984. And some of you are like, wait a second, did all you do is watch superhero movies over Thanksgiving? And the answer is yes. (laughs) That's all I did. And it was great. It was glorious, but in that movie, the villain there—you know what the villain does—he grants everybody their wish. He says, "Tell me any wish you want, and I'll grant it to you." So the whole world starts asking for their wish, their greatest heart's desire to be fulfilled. And what was interesting is the storyline—the movie plays out what would happen if every single one of us got exactly what we ever wanted. What happened happen is—is is everybody's wish cancels out other people's wishes, and so there was chaos. There was, uh, it was mass hysteria. And I thought that was actually really interesting because the, the very ending, it was, you know, you have to let go of what you most desire because often what we most desire is an opposition of somebody else. Right? If you hold on to what I most want, it's going to cancel out what you most want because that's what self-prioritization does. That when we focus on ourselves, we don't realize that it actually makes the world a worse place, which I find that's why, so it's so ironic when the world says, you do you, can you imagine, if everybody's doing you, the world is bad because us is being us. I got on a, um, on a bus uh, last week, and uh, there's this woman just screaming at the bus driver, just screaming. Eventually, she sat down, It was a crowded bus, and I was up in the front, and I looked at the bus driver, and he looked at me, and we had this like knowing face where I was like, I was going like this and he was like, like this. And then he said what I thought he was going to say. He said, people, people. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, people. <laughs> and then I was like, wait, that's me. <laughs> and I was like, and anybody who works with pu- the public, anybody who's in food service or anybody who does like a public facing job understands it's not just that pr- woman over there. It's, it's people in general that has this me-first attitude. And um, I don't care if you're a, a pastor or a, a, um, a nice person. See, there's this little sneaky trick that says, well, I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm, and, but guess what? There's a part of you that takes that thing and prioritizes yourself. You say, hey, I'm a good person. I'm the one who does good things. I help old ladies cross streets. I, uh, I, and there's a pridefulness and a self-centeredness about that. And this is important because I think people think, Christianity is about being a good person, but Christianity is actually telling you that even in your good personness, you can still be self-centered. It's still fallenness. And this is, that's the core problem we find here, is self-prioritization. Okay, that's the first layer of sin. But look at the next verse. See, first layer is each, every individual turns their own way. But look at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. Now stop here for a second. Western civilization... Has over prioritized individual sin. The concept of oppression is not individualistic, it's collective. If a bunch of people, one people group, self prioritizes enough, they can self prioritize their people group over another people group. And that leads to oppression. That's why Bruce Walkie points out in his commentary on Genesis the definition of sin biblically is not just a bunch of individuals, it's, it's a collective place. Where we advantage ourselves at the disadvantage of others. In other words, a good definition of sin is where we disadvantage the community to advantage ourselves. And I would argue that until we understand this intellectually, until we deeply, deeply get, not just intellectually, but experientially, that every single one of our situations, every single uh, moment of our life, this is how our heart works, we will be naive. And what the real problem is, not in the world, not just in the world, but also in ourselves. And I think that's why if, when you center on self in relationships, it kills relationships. When you center on self in your job, if everybody's centered on self, it kills the, the job. You center on self in your marriage, it kills the marriage. I find it deeply, deeply ironic then that, that there's something about the, our, our narrative that says that's actually an okay thing to do. Because I think this shows us how that's actually a layer of sin. That's our need. All right.
0: At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon.
2: That's our need, number two. What are his actions? We said earlier, you'll feel most loved if you knew what his actions were. Well, the text goes through a bunch. I'm only going to highlight three. His actions are a response to our need. Now, what did I just say? The core of sin is self-prioritization, it's centering yourself, my own way. So isn't it interesting, the core narrative of the redemptive, his, the redemptive history of all of creation, if we're centering ourself, it's God substituting himself for us. Right, if we are always saying me, the core of redemption is him saying you. I mean, where, where do we see that? Three places, go back to verse two, the very beginning. It says that this person has no beauty or majesty. And I used to read that, and I always was like, ah, who cares that, the, that this, this person that we need doesn't, isn't beautiful? Who cares? Why does it actually matter? Well, think about it. If the core of your life is puffing ourselves up and making us, our, ourselves greater than who we really are, then this person does the opposite. And that's it, what you find in the incarnation, the whole story of Christmas. It's the God of creation the glory, the power, the beauty, all in a manger. In a place of, of, of uh, frankly, feces and smells and ugliness and dirtiness and unsanitary, unsanitary location. I, isn't it interesting, if Christianity is true and Jesus is who he says he is, this man lived for 30 some odd years and most people on earth didn't think anything of it. That Jesus was so unremarkable so normal, that he wasn't, nobody knew that he was special. And I believe that's actually what's so special about Christianity. Think about the life of being a Christian. It's the same thing. What does it mean to be a Christian? You read your Bible, you ask the text some questions, you pray, you go to a community group, you come here. It's all very normal. It's not glitz, it's not glamour, and I would argue that's how you know it's real in fact if if i was up here kind of trying to sell you some snake oil and you know do a, a song and pony you know dance uh i even messed that up see um that's how you would know that that's not real but god showing up in a manger having nothing in his appearance means that you and i have to don't have to have anything in our appearance too i think it's a miracle that god doesn't need a miracle to be near you it's wondrous that you don't have to be a wonder It's special that you don't have to be anything special. That's what's so crazy and beautiful and amazing here. That if God became ordinary to meet each one of us in our ordinariness, it's okay to be ordinary. I think one of the problems of growing up in this town is this town always says you have to be the next level. And some of us are struggling with just our ordinariness, our normalness. And this is saying, if Jesus was then that's one of the best things about being human. It's okay. So if you want the facts of how God loves you, is that he doesn't require for you to be more than who you are today. That's beautiful. I would argue every other religion in the world says you have to be special. You have to, um, you know, be the perfect person. You have to be the best. You have to be the brightest. I would say the secular world says the same thing. The people in are the accomplished, the best, the brightest. Only Christianity shows up. And what does Jesus say? Come all ye who are weary and heavy laden. All are in. It's beautiful. So that's the first thing, first action. Number one. Number two, he didn't just come to be ordinary. Look at verse five. It says that he was pierced. In verse five, it says he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed. And all the verbs here in Hebrew point to the because of our transgressions our iniquities. If we sub ourselves out to be him, he subs himself in to be us and takes what we deserve. Look at verse 4, right? It says that he took up our pain. He took up our nature. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. And I I think one of the eternal mysteries that I struggle with is why. One of my biggest questions, Why, why would he do it? Why would he think I'm worth it? And I was asking this text this exact question. I saw something for the first time I've never seen here. Look at verse 6 again. Yes, the first part says, we all like sheep have gone astray. That's the first part. But look how it ends, verse 6. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. We so focus on the beginning, we don't look at the end of the verse. We, we focus on how it starts. We don't focus on and marvel at how it ends. It's he does it all for us. The core of Christianity is not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us. And I, I really believe if we just stopped for a second, if we just stopped looking at all the things he hasn't done, we could marvel at all the things that he has. If we could completely and utterly marvel that that's what we need. This is saying he comes to you and for you, crushed by the burden of being who you are. He takes that off of you. And if we just let him, it would be wondrous, it'd be beautiful. And yet, here we are going around saying, no, I'm gonna go my way, I'm gonna go astray, I'm gonna go over here. Peer-stricken, afflicted, all actions for you. Third action, last action, verse seven. Not once, but twice it says that he did not open his mouth. And you have to understand this in Hebrew uh, writings, if you see a, a, a basically a, re- a repeat, it means this is something to emphasize why do we need to emphasize that he didn't open his mouth? Back in 1983, Ernest Gordon wrote about his time as a POW in World War II. And he was a Scottish soldier, and he was forced to build a a railroad. And they had to, when they were digging the trenches in this railroad, they had to, every day at the end of the day, put their tools in a tool shed, and they had to count and make sure everything was accounted for. Because they didn't want somebody to steal a shovel or something and and try to break the chains and and run away. One day, there was a shovel that went missing. And so the guards lined up all the POWs and started screaming at them saying, somebody has to come forward and bring about this missing shovel. And if you don't, we're just going to start killing each one of you until that shovel shows up. Nobody stepped forward. And the um, main... Guard pulls out his gun and was about to start killing each one of the POWs. And all of a sudden, one person walked forward, stayed silent, just stepped forward out of the line. He was immediately beaten to death. And when everybody got back to camp, because they were saved by this person, they, they, they counted all the tools. It turns out that shovel wasn't missing. It turns out that it was a miscount. And yet the silence of that person who stepped forward, saved Everybody else. And word spread throughout the whole camp. And what this, this uh, Ernest Gordon points out is it changed how they started treating each other. They saw how they were actually more like brothers. They were more in this together because of the, the salvation given by this individual who stepped forward. And even, even more amazing, when the war was over, the survivors were able to face their, 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 capt- their captors. And instead of attacking them, they forgave them. And and a lot of the people said the reason why is we do not need more bloodshed right now. The costliness of that person's life didn't just save them through silence. It allowed them to turn around and save others. And here's what's crazy. If his life did that, imagine if we understood Jesus' action of silence, the fact that he kept his mouth closed. The silence, the willingness, the substitution act right there. you want to know the actions i think we focus on what he doesn't do look at all the actions his ordinary action his substitution of of of, uh, providing for us of our afflictions the fact that he takes down the signs these are all actions now lastly last point how do they heal us verse 5 says and this is a profound statement it's by his wounds that we are healed you say well i thought the actions are supposed to heal us yeah but the actions are in power through his wounds. And my question to you is, how? How are his wounds uh, active in our life to heal us? See, some people would say, what you're supposed to do is look at his wounds, see how bad it was, you know, watch the passion of Christ, and then feel bad enough so that maybe one day you'll be a good person and then you'll, you'll, you know, you'll live a good life. I would argue that's not the answer. That's not Christianity. I think I just made the argument that actually you can prioritize self hedonistically over there but you can do the same thing coming to church every single sunday saying i'm a good person look how great i am and it's still about you that's not the core of christianity the core of christianity here that, that, that this is saying is beyond that it's in his wounds what he's done first peter two twenty two quotes this isaiah passage this is what it says peter says he committed no sin He himself bore our sin in his body on the cross so that you might die to sin and live by his wounds you've been healed. There it is again. But now it's in reference to Jesus. How has his wounds healed our wounds? I think this is where you have to do a bit of work. Where are your wounds today? Where are the places in your life right now that you're not getting the love, the trust, the respect, the honor, the care, where, is, where are those things in your life right now that you're not getting? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your friendships. Maybe it's your living situation. I, 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 I'm positive. By the way, I'm not discounting those things. I'm actually saying it's true. We did this a couple weeks ago. I said everybody in this room could probably point to other people who have taken from you, who have not given to you what you are due, and I'm 100% in agreement with that. But as long as you're focused on what you don't have, you can't see what you do. And here's what you have. His wounds have healed you. And if you understood that, if you deeply understood that, that means we don't need other things in the same way that we thought we need. We thought we needed that other person's love, but if we have his love, it's greater than all the other loves in the world. Yeah, I needed that respect, but I have his respect. And that respect is greater than any other respect in the world. And if we lived in that space, it would change everything else. See, go back to your wounds. What, guilt is I, uh, I did wrong, and shame is I am wrong. right? Guilt is I failed, and shame is I am a failure. And I think to various degrees, there's people in this room that feel that guilt and shame. But if you knew, at some level, that no matter what you've done, no matter what, what you will do, you... 2,000 years ago, that was forgiven to you, applied to you today. If you really understood that, if you let that kind of seeped in, how would you act? How would you be different? Um, my, my kids and I, we watched a, a portion of the, the Muppet Christmas, Christmas Carol a couple days ago. It's the, ver, you know, the Muppet version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And what happened to Scrooge? On Christmas Day, what happened? He thought everything was over, all was lost, and he woke up. And what, how did he act? He runs through the streets, he's overjoyed, he's happy, because he's alive. And all of a sudden, his life uh, apparatus, the way he saw everything changed. Money used to be his idol, but now money was just money. He could run through the streets throwing coins left and right. Because, why? He thought he was a dead, and now he's alive. In other words, Scrooge tasted grace. But here, let, me, let me be honest with you, I've been thinking about this the couple, past couple days. What was the grace Scrooge got? He got the grace of a second chance. That's actually not the grace that's being offered to us here. You're not just being offered a second chance for you to mess up again. The biblical view of grace is that you can't fix yourself, but he did. He was pierced and crushed and paid, and now we get the beauty and the healing in the home. And guess what? If if Scrooge was transformed by a second chance, how much more could you and I be transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ? If, if, if we just accepted it, we would stop feeling bad about how much we're feeling bad. We, we, we would stop trying to control what we can't control. Jesus didn't give up his infinite glory to solve some sort of cosmic debt for you to kind of go back and, and walk around as if that didn't actually happen. He reversed the roles with you to bring us home. I think that's why the Bible is full of reversals. It's almost like it's trying to scream at us Right? What's God trying to tell us with all these reversals? That God picks Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Sarah over Hagar, Leah over Rachel, David over his brothers, Jacob over Esau, Moses over Aaron. It goes over and over and over. Why? What is all that? Why? Because life is this. The world picks the beautiful and the powerful and the winners. And that's not how God works. God doesn't do that. If Jesus... It, Jesus believed that the most in God, and his life didn't go great. So I'm 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 telling you that because I'm not saying if you just believe in him, then everything's going to go great in your life. No, Jesus believed in God the most, and his life didn't go so great. But if you live for him, the biblical narrative says that every bad thing, every curse in your life can become a blessing. They will mean it for evil. The people that have hurt you might have meant it for evil, but God means it for good. And that's the mystery. I don't know. I can, I'm not up here to tell you why God allows evil and suffering to continue to exist. But I know this it's not because He doesn't love you. He entered into it. There's not one person in this room in the person of Jesus that has someone, has something that He hasn't felt Himself and gone through Himself. And if God could take the worst thing in all history, the suffering of Jesus, and turn it into a blessing, then He can take the things that you're suffering through and turn them into blessings into your life. That's the promise. That's what we have. In Him, suffering is never meaningless; it turns to blessing. Because that same reversal that happens, happens on the cross. All was lost, all all was found. All was dark, and Christmas all was made light. Maybe, and I have to be honest with you. Maybe you feel like, and maybe you never got into the right school. Maybe not got the right friend group. Maybe didn't get the right parents. Maybe didn't get the right job, you get your fair share. I believe you. I'm not disagreeing. But when you feel cursed, in Jesus, those curses can become blessings. That's the promise. And guess what then? All your sufferings can allow you to worship Jesus a little bit better. Why? Because each suffering gives you a, a slight better taste of what he went through for you. So when you're hurting, you can say, wait, Jesus went through that for me too? Thank you, Jesus. When you, when you get that next level of hurt, you go, whoa, he even experienced that too? Thank you, Jesus. Uh, to, to end, let me just give you a couple practical things here that I think from the text. One, if sheep go astray, and if you hang, hang with enough sheep, you see this. The problem is they don't go astray, and they, go, they know they're astray. The problem with sheep is they don't know they're astray. Where are you astray right now that you don't know you're astray? Where are you right now looking to something created that only the Creator can give you? That's what I want you to ask yourself the ne- this next week. Where might where might you be thinking you're thriving, but actually it, it's it's leading to your demise, and you you've fallen apart. I think that um, if sheep don't understand this, then we don't understand this either. That's number one. Number two. Secondly, then will you turn towards him? If 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 our na- natural heart is to turn away and go our own way, will you turn towards him? Sheep always turn away; they get turned around. But will you turn? towards him. Maybe today you've never turned to your true shepherd. Maybe you've never done it, but this is being offered to you. Maybe you thought you've been following the shepherd, but now today you realize maybe you haven't. You can turn back towards him. Will you do that? Last thing, if Jesus took the curse so that you and I can have the blessing, every single curse that you go through right now is a potential place for you to remember that ultimate blessing. And if you apply that to your life, nothing can keep you ultimately down. You'll have down days. You'll have up days. But you'll never have without Him. You'll never have life without Him. And that would make you more stable than you can possibly imagine. Nothing could shake you. I want us to be people like that. Grounded and rooted like that, then the the series we did on generosity comes out in power because we can focus not just on our own needs but we can focus on the needs of the world. Are you ready to do that? Only His wounds will are we healed? Let's rest in his actions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for superhero movies. Thank you for uh, trivial, just sometimes mindless stories. But Father, we still see the, the, the truths of life through them all. We see our brokenness. We see our need. Often we cloud it. We cover it. We can sanitize it. We can call it cognitive bias. We can call it whatever we want. But Father, we have a Propensity is center on self. Because we think that's the solution. Father, But it leads to more breakdown. When we pray that we see your actions. And this text shows us better than ever, ever before your actions for us. We see your ordinariness. We see your um, Your ability to be afflicted and, and to take on the, our transgressions. We see that your silence, we never thought that your silence was actually this amazing grace to stand up for us and give us what we need. I pray this morning, there's probably a lot of us uh, dreading this, this holiday season. There's a lot of anxiety. There's always a lot more hurts, whether it's family or the lack thereof. I pray that we would go into your blessing. All the wounds that we have, those are real, but you apply the truth of the gospel to our hearts through this blessing, through what you've done for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.